Uh, but if you have your Bibles with you tonight, go ahead and open them to Genesis chapter 50. And while you do, if we could get the image up on the screen behind me. Uh, if you remember, we're moving across the entirety of the Bible this year here at the Well from beginning to end. And we're stopping at a few places in between. And the stop that we're currently at is pretty close to the front. You'll see those three gentlemen standing together. Those are the patriarchs. And those patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're tagging on right here at the end Jacob's son, Joseph. So that's where you see where we are in the story. Uh, and you may have noticed we have a long ways to go yet this year. So I promise after this week, we're going to start picking it up and we're going to get rolling uh, all the way to Revelation. But here we are in Genesis 50. Does anybody need a Bible yet tonight? Anybody need a Bible? We have them in the back. We've got one up here. Anybody else? Genesis chapter 50. We'll be reading verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants to the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God as for you? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them. And spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am glad uh, that none of you in this room uh, knew me as a child. Um, because when I think about my own role in my family, uh, I was the youngest for many years. And the way I leaned into that role or lived into that role was as the family tattletale, as uh, many of us youngest tend to do, uh, to our own remorse later in life. But that was me, and I lived into it. And I even remember thinking about it this week. Uh, one time, my, my eldest sister, Kelly, doing something fairly regrettable uh, and turning around to my brother and I and saying, what would it cost for you not to tell mom and dad? Uh, and it cost quite a bit, turns out. It cost quite a bit. <laughs> Uh, but one of the days this, this caught up to me with my older brothers who were having their gang of friends over to hang out. Uh, and in preparation for that event and the fun that they wanted to have, they chased me down quite successfully. Uh, they wrapped me up in a hammock that they then duct taped shut. Uh, and they tied me to the computer chair and wheeled me into the fruit cellar. Uh, and there I spent the afternoon of fun. 
uh, having not quite as much fun. And as I was thinking about that, my story of, you know, can you believe what my brothers did to me, holds up pretty well against most people until I come to the story of Joseph, because he would believe it. He would believe what my brothers did to me because his brothers did even worse to him and they had meant it for evil. They had meant it all for evil. But what they had meant for evil, God had meant for good. So in order to know what what he's talking about, in case you didn't catch it all in that video uh, from before, we're going to backtrack for a few minutes and see what was it that they meant for evil and how did God use that for good? Because if you remember uh, from quite a while back already, when we looked at Abraham, you may remember he was 100 years old when he gave birth, well, when his wife, rather, uh, gave birth. Let's give credit where credit's due. Uh, When Sarah gave birth at the age of 90 to their son Isaac, the miracle baby that they had prayed about and they had been promised about. And then if we follow Isaac's story, we'll find that he too is unable to have any kids because his wife, Rebecca, is barren. So he prays to the Lord on her behalf. And she conceives and gives birth to Esau and to Jacob. Again, miracle babies out of the impossible. And then if we follow Jacob's story, again, the chosen line that God is working through, we come to read about Joseph. And what we find about Joseph is that he was Jacob's favorite son, and we read about that because he was the son of his old age, Genesis tells us. Why was he the son of Jacob's old age? Because his favorite wife, Rachel, was barren and unable to have kids until Joseph was born. So in this long line, we see, if we start with Joseph, that he, Joseph, is the miracle baby of Jacob, who is the miracle baby of Isaac, who is the miracle baby of Abraham. So you're starting to catch on that this line has something amazing happening. This line has something extraordinary that God is wanting to do in the world. And so Jacob picks up on it. It's not lost on him, and Joseph is his favorite by far and away. And so he loves him. He cares for him, he provides for him, and he gives him more than any of the others, including a beautiful cloak. Not just any cloak. This was a richly ornamented cloak, or, or as you'll read elsewhere, a cloak of many colors. This was the robe of all robes, and robes in the ancient world had so much meaning. This wasn't just a piece of clothing that looked nice. No, if we look at other cases or other contexts where we see a robe in play, I was, I was thinking about this leading up to the sermon and thinking about uh, in the Assyrian tradition in the 8th century BC, there's Sargon II, and he takes over this nation, and to the king of that nation, he gives a fine robe and a ring. And with that robe and ring came the right to continue ruling all of that land. Or in the Hittite tradition, the neighbors of the Israelite people In their law 171, it says if a son is disobedient to his mother, she can take the cloak away from him and send him out of the house and he's disinherited. And then when he comes back, if he is repentant, she puts that cloak back on his shoulders and the inheritance again 
belongs to him. Or we see in Deuteronomy, in the laws of the people of Israel, it commands, do not take the robe of a widow as a pledge. Why not? Well, because the robe represented all that the one who had worn it, namely her husband, represented. So when a man died in ancient Israel, the deed to his land would either literally or figuratively be sewn into the hem of his garment so that the one who wears it after him, whether it's his widow or whether it's his eldest son, comes to represent all that he represented when he wore that robe. This sounds an awful lot like Scott Stark's sermon a couple weeks ago on the prodigal son when the son comes home and the father throws the best robe on him. No wonder, no wonder the older brother is so upset. One last case, thinking about when the future King David, if we fast forward in the Old Testament, when King Saul is trying to kill him, King Saul's son Jonathan goes out to a field and gives him the signal to run for it. And he says, get out of here. But before he does, they come together for Jonathan to bless David. And in that parting, it says, Jonathan takes off his cloak and he puts it on David. It wasn't because it was chilly. No, Jonathan was saying, this cloak and this kingdom that it represents, this belongs to you. So yes, you're running. Yes, you're hiding. But all that is mine is yours, and I know that. So take it and go. You see, cloaks in the ancient world were a big deal, and Joseph had the best one. And he had all that came along with it, all of the prestige, all of the honor, all of the future. It belonged to Joseph. And his brothers hated him for it. And so they intended evil, as Genesis 50 tells us. And when we look back at what that was in Genesis 37, we see Joseph coming up to his brothers as they're tending sheep near Shechem. And as he nears in the distance, it says the brothers gathered together and says, here comes that dreamer. Talking about dreams that Joseph had had that someday his brothers would bow down to him. Here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and get it over with. And so when he comes and nears the brothers, they seize him and they rip that robe off of him. And Reuben, in a moment of somewhat clear thinking, says, Let's not kill him, let's throw him in the pit, thinking he would save them, save him later. And so they do that. They take his robe, they throw him in a pit, and they sit down for lunch. And while they're eating, another brother, Judah, sees a group of Midianite traders coming down the road, and he says, what good is it to us if we kill him? Let's sell him. And so they do. They haul Joseph up out of the pit. They bring him over to the traders and negotiate for 20 shekels of silver, their brother's life into bondage forever. What they intended for evil. They took his cloak and the future that it held. They took his life and the freedom that it had. They sold it for 20 silver coins, what they intended for evil. That's the Joseph we're talking about. 
the one wandering on the road to slavery in Egypt. And when we read in Genesis 50, the text that we have for tonight, when he says what you meant for evil, he's saying when you roughed me up, when you sold me, when you took that cloak from me and the future that it held for me, when you told my father that I was dead, when you tried to kill me, all of these things, what you intended for evil. Then we come to the turn. We come to the turn that you'll see all throughout this story that we're telling this year. What you intended for evil but God. We're coming to the but God. Because when we follow Joseph on this journey to Egypt, when we follow him on his way, we find that he arrives in the house of Potiphar in Genesis chapter 37. And there at that house, it says, and God was with Joseph and caused all that he did to succeed. And so he rose to the top of the house and he managed the entire home of this Egyptian leader. And it thrived and it prospered. You see, God was with Joseph. And in the midst of that, he was tempted by the master's wife who tried to seduce him unsuccessfully. And then she accused him just the same. And he was thrown into prison. So you see Joseph on this roller coaster through his life. And as he does, as he heads now into prison, we get there later in chapter 37, and it transitions again. But God. But God was with Joseph in that prison, and he raised him up and let him find favor in the eyes of the jailkeeper. And so he became the one who oversaw all that happened in the prison. From the least to the greatest, Joseph, though in prison, was in charge. And in that position of privilege, he met these two men that had a vision. They didn't understand what was happening. And he said, well, my Lord uh, knows visions. He's the one that gives them. He's the one that interprets them. Tell me your vision. And so they do. And in so doing, Joseph tells them what it's going to do, what it means, what's going to happen to them. And they say, oh, thank you. When we come out of this prison, we're going to remember you and get you out. And they come out of the prison at least one of them does, just as Joseph said he would. And he forgets about Joseph. And there he stays in prison. And we get to it again. But God. But God spoke to Pharaoh in a vision. And again, God looks favorably upon Joseph. Because when Pharaoh has this vision two years after the other visions, the man that was released from prison remembers and says, oh, oh no, I've done something terrible. There's somebody back there in the prison that he told me exactly what would happen. And it came to pass. He can do the same for Pharaoh. So Pharaoh calls up Joseph and he comes out of prison and he tells Pharaoh what his visions mean, namely that there's going to be seven years of plenty in the land, seven years of abundance, seven years of God's blessing. And after that, God's going to pull that away and there's going to be seven years of drought and famine and want and need. And Pharaoh's, wow, is there anybody in all the land like Joseph? And so he places Joseph at the very top of his kingdom only below himself in power. 
And you better believe in this position, what does Pharaoh do but give Joseph a ring and a cloak? And with it, he placed Joseph in charge of all of the lands of Egypt. What you had intended for evil, God had intended for good so that many people might be kept alive. You see, because in this story, as it goes along, Joseph ends up building all sorts of storehouses in which these years of abundance are collected and placed and kept for the seven years of need or seven years of want like nobody else had done. And so when those seven years came, it was Egypt that provided for all the nations around. It was Egypt that was able to meet the needs. It was Egypt that was able really to allow the entire region to survive. And we all know behind Egypt was Joseph and behind Joseph was God who intended all of that for good. Who intended to use all of that mess to allow many people, countless people, Egyptian people, Israelite people, Canaanite people, to live but God. And then we come to the moment of this story because as as the Israelites come into the land in the form of these brothers of Joseph in the years of drought, they come and they find Joseph sitting on the throne of Egypt. And in that position of deep need and deep regret, they repent. And Joseph forgives them. He forgives them all. And then they live in abundance in the land. Jacob, their father, comes and lives with them. But then he dies, and it all starts to catch back up to them, and they're stuck wondering, were they really forgiven all those years ago? Did Joseph really forgive them, or was it just his honor of their father, Jacob? And so they come to him in Genesis 50, verse 15. And say, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. What if he hates us? They thought, what if he still intends to pay us back? What if he intends to do the evil to us that we had tried to do to him? What if he's been holding on to it all these years? What if we haven't really been forgiven? Have you ever asked a question like that? I know I have. What if I haven't really been forgiven? Because we've all done things that have locked us just like these brothers into these cycles of fear and guilt. What if? What if our families knew? What if our friends knew? What if God knew? What if Jesus knew? Would he still love us? Have I really been forgiven? 
for cheating on that exam have I been forgiven? For that habit of self-harm? For that abortion that nobody knows about? For my addiction to pornography? For that time I could have done something and I didn't? For that time I shouldn't have done something and I did? For when I slandered my friends? For when I walked out? Have I really, really, truly been forgiven? And so the doubt paralyzes us. And so we bow down just as these brothers did in our fear and in our guilt and entertain the lie that if only our friends knew, if only all these people knew, if only God knew, they wouldn't love me. But here's the thing, because here's where we come to the point. Here's where it all comes to the head. When I think of the story of Joseph, I don't think only about Joseph. Right? When I'm thinking about a miracle child, when I'm thinking about one who was despised by his family, who was sold for a few silver coins, who was betrayed. When I think about one who was faithful in temptation, stripped of his robe, falsely accused, thrown into prison, and in the end of it all, raised up to a position of unparalleled authority and power, and in that position declares forgiveness and salvation to all that come before his throne. When I'm thinking about that person, I'm not thinking about Joseph. I'm thinking about Jesus. And when I think about Jesus in that moment of power, when I think about Jesus in that position of authority and when I think about Jesus and when he says in his love for me and when he says in his love for you what you intended for evil, I intended for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive. Because when you come to the throne of Christ and repent of your sin, just as Joseph's brothers had done, in that position you find forgiveness. When you come to the throne of Jesus and repent of your sin, in that position you find freedom. Not just for a little while, forever. And Christ turns to us and says, through my crucifixion, your guilt's been covered through my death. Your shame has been crowned with honor. Through my suffering, you have been given abundant life. Through the punishment that was placed on me, forgiveness is offered forever and always to you. Forever. For everything. Even for the worst of things. And we're left wondering, what about the evidence? How do we know? Look at the cloak. In Galatians 3, 27, it says, For as many of you as were baptized in Christ 
have clothed yourselves with Christ. Paul is not just talking about any old coat. No, Paul is looking back at the Old Testament when he wrote the letter to the Galatians and he says, you're clothed with Christ. Do you understand what that means? Because what I want it to mean and what I'm saying it means is you're clothed with all that belongs to Christ, all that is given to Christ, all that is owned by Christ. When he gives you that cloak, when he clothes you with himself, he says, all that I am is yours. All the blessing, both now and forever, that belongs to me, belongs to you. The place in the heavenlies that is reserved for me, is reserved for you. The forgiveness that came through me is given to you. The honor that is earned by me is given to you. Because you've got Christ on you. On all of you. On the good and the bad. You have been clothed with Christ. You've been covered in Christ. And if you've not yet turned to Jesus Christ, he makes the same offer to you. He stands with the cloak out to you and says, here it is. Let me throw it on your shoulders. Let me cover you. Let me wrap you up in it so that all that you are is covered in Christ. 